0: Well, if you want to be turning in your Bibles back to Acts chapter 17. I guess the online crowd will miss. It's not working today. <laughs> but uh we're picking up in a book that I was in uh, before sabbatical last fall. So that was months ago. Um, we were in our third dive into the book of Acts. And I intend to finish that third dive. We're just going to go through Acts chapter 20. That should take us most of the year. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know. Um, if I go the pace I'm going today, maybe. But um speaking of getting back on track, uh, if you've been here for the last month or two, I think I've been in a different Bible every Sunday. And uh, I've just decided to, better or worse, it sounds like wedding vows, I'm going to try my best to not revisit this in the near future, That I think I'm just going to stick with a translation called the BSB. And uh, that's where we'll, the books we'll be using. I, even in God's providence, I found somebody willing to trade all of our Pew Bibles for some BSB Bibles. So that's where we're going to be, is in the, the Berean Study Bible. So that's not my sermon, not quite. But we do catch up with Paul In Acts chapter 17, and he's been from town to town on the Greek peninsula in his second missionary journey. And it seems like in every town he's been dragged before the town's leaders. Riots have uh, ensued and so forth because, I guess, he's just preaching too much Jesus. (laughs) He's just preaching too much resurrection, too much peace and goodwill towards men. I guess it's just too offensive. Of course, as you read Acts chapters 16 and 17, you find that they have lots of excuses, such as Paul and company. They've exercised demons uh, out of a money-making slave that they'd had. The question is, is where did all the money go? Or uh, the preaching has implications for adherence to Judaism to break away from supporting and financing local synagogues, so where did all the money go? So, you know, there's noble things like that to be offended by, I guess. I'm losing a little sarcasm. But Paul was most recent in a town called Berea, wherein locally he seemed to have some success. But some enemies of a town prior to, a town called Thessalonica, saw it worth their while to travel 50 miles to come and instigate some more violence and opposition to Paul and company, the company being Silas and Timothy. And where we last left the story last October, Paul had to escape by night and was by his lonesome showing up in the city of Athens. And he's waiting there to be rejoined by Silas and Timothy. They apparently stayed behind Apparently, they weren't being targeted by the Thessalonian rabble rousers, and they just wanted to make sure, I would guess, that the Berean church was taking off well. We're going to be studying in Acts 17, verse 16 today. And as usual, my intentions were to preach on much more text, but I found it just necessary to focus on this one verse. So please stand for, I don't know, these 20 words, if you're able to. Acts 17, verse 16. We read, While Paul was waiting for them, Silas and Timothy, in Athens, he was deeply disturbed in his spirit to see that the city was full of idols. Let's pray. Father, we come to passages in Scripture that we we think really don't relate to us. We... Uh, get thrown off by some of the cultural words and some of the cultural things and customs that are taking place. And I know I have a tendency to just glance over them if I'm not careful. Um, but Father, as you slowed my heart and my mind and my study down this last week, I pray that whatever it is that you decided to, to say to me would be the words that you would say to those here. Uh, we pray that you would have your way among us and that you would um, say whatever it is you desire. We ask and pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. In my dips into Bible translations, there is a problem that many translations or people who read the Bible recognize, but what they do about it is not always agreed upon. That is the text and the culture and the world of the Bible is foreign to us. We're in the 21st century. We are Westerners trying to understand the first century and before Jewish thinkers and thinking and cultures. And the bottom line is that it's a foreign world and a foreign culture to us. There are words, ideas, thinking, and so forth, that is foreign to us, so we need to study a little bit sometimes to get it. Now, this is perhaps the most relevant in places like the book of Revelation or even in the early Old Testament books. Why all those symbolism or why the weird dysfunctional families with intermarriage and so forth? However, in the same token, I, was, I wrote that there is some truth, but if I believe the Bible, there is absolute truth, and what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 1.9, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. And so we look in the Bible and we find that despite all of its foreign cultures and customs, people never change. <laughs> it's so familiar. They're always messing up the same, thinking the same, doing the same thing, struggling with the same problems. Paul is showing up in an ancient, world-renowned city, even ancient by the time he showed up in it. And we read at first things that may sound foreign to us, like it would never happen here and now, but you actually find it's very familiar. Again, when, while Paul was waiting for them, Silas and Timothy in Athens, he was deeply Disturbed in his spirit to see that the city was full of idols. Paul's here in the first century A.D., six centuries prior, the fifth century B.C., that was Athens' heyday. It was then when all the magnificent structures were built, including the Aeropagus or Mars Hill, where Paul preaches at later in this passage, It is then that all the poets were flourishing, Sophocles, Euripides, Aristophanes, and more. Pericles was Athens' leader during the 5th century B.C. The Romans came and conquered Athens in 146 B.C., but even though it remained a big, important, culturally significant city. It's kind of like Byzantium, which became Constantinople, which is now Istanbul, (laughs) Some cities, no matter when, where, who, or who they're ruled by, they just remain significant. This is Athens. And Paul shows up and he's deeply disturbed in his spirit because he sees it's full of idols. Many of the city's famed buildings, they're all temples and shrines to gods and goddesses. This is like if you showed up to view the iconic skyline of of Seattle or New York City, and if all those skyscrapers were made in veneration of different gods and goddesses. We're not told, but some speculate if Paul got to Athens by a land route from Berea, or if he had sailed around to Athens. And if he's sailing, and if he's coming into port, one would see the Acropolis, which had the Parthenon, a huge statue of a goddess, as part of the Athens skyline, even before reaching Athens itself. Petronius. Everybody knows Petronius. No, I didn't. (laughs) A Roman court official contemporary of Paul, he wrote satirically that it was easier to find a god than a man in Athens. When the pagan observer notes the plethora of gods in a city, it must be a city full of idols. (laughs) Exodus chapter 20 verses 3 through 5 tell us the first two commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself an idol in the form of anything in the heavens above, on the earth below, or in the waters beneath. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Now Paul was a devout Jewish man prior to his conversion, and no doubt he still considered these commands. In fact... He would write of the godless in his letter to the book of uh, to the church of Romans for although they knew God they neither glorified him as God nor gave him thanks but they became futile in their thinking and darkened in their foolish hearts although they claimed to be wise they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images of mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles The deep disturbance, the the provocation within Paul's spirit is one that has to do with worship and where it is placed. I think sometimes we have the tendency to see the ideas of idols or worship in this sense as a bunch of crazed, primitive, backwards people dancing around statues and so forth. (laughs) And I don't think it's that simple, I don't think it's that one-dimensional. A few examples I have for you. One is is about to come from a movie called Risen. Uh, Risen, if you've never seen it, is a fictional account of the manhunt for Jesus after he resurrected. Spoiler alert, they never found him. But, the Romans, in order to appease the Jewish Sanhedrin who want a body, they're on a manhunt for Jesus trying to find at least his disciples so they can get to the bottom of what happened. Of course, the prospect of a resurrection was a little too bizarre for a bunch of pagan uh, godless Romans to entertain. What you're about to see is a poorly recorded scene because I recorded my TV from my phone. Since I only have the movie on Blu-ray and I didn't feel like setting up a Blu-ray player (laughs) just so you can see one minute of a film, even so, what you see here is going to be the the primary Roman military tribune. He's in charge of hunting down Jesus, and he's at his wit's end. He's in between interrogating people, and he's told at the beginning that perhaps the next person they interview will have the answers that they seek. But the tribune walks out for a break, and then he makes a sacrifice to Yahweh, vowing to erect temples and organize games in his name and honor, if only... He would turn over his followers to him. So, hopefully, uh, let me probably should turn off some lights first. <laughs> and then I have the volume, I haven't, I didn't check the volume before, so I hope it's not ear piercing. I I believe. These people I seek and relinquish them to me. If you do this with clear and recognizable signs, I vow to erect temples for you and initiate games in your honor. And that's how you pray. <laughs> um, yeah. The King James version uh, later in the passage that we're studying as Paul begins to preach, would put Paul's first words this way. Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. While I take a little disagreement with the connotations of too superstitious, I don't think Paul would begin with a face flap like that per se. I'll talk about that when we get there. Anyways, the point is is that perhaps we do see that shade in the movie clip we just watched. Uh, Like a Roman, make a few promises, leave an offering, and walk on, hoping that the prayer is heard. Another form of idolatry that I'm reminded of, as an example, actually comes from the Lewis and Clark story. I was watching uh, the Ken Burns Lewis and Clark documentary, and in it, William Clark describes in his journal an event while they're staying at Fort Mandan in their first winter. Near the end of their stay, the buffalo dance is described. Uh, This is where the native people would don some animal skins, smoke some pipes. They'd dance around a fire. And then from what I gather, some worship in the form of sexuality would ensue. uh, Or at least it was a part of that event that Clark describes. But this was all to beckon back the buffalo from their winter grounds back to where the Mandan were so they could be hunted and killed. For all their uses. Now, this wasn't a, a perhaps a clear course of or form of idolatry per se. There was no totem pole or no statue they were looking at. But they were dancing and doing a form of worship, believing that it would accomplish certain purposes. Now, don't hear this as a conservative white guy picking on other cultures and nations. Uh, hear this as the word of God picking on all nations. <laughs> uh, God calls everyone, everywhere to repent. Paul actually says that later in his sermon in this chapter. You and I got sins too. And hopefully that will be made clear by the end of this message. My point is, is that through the culture and through the the forwardness of what might first be, we might be really taken back by, like really, statues or people leaving money, making demands, hoping they'll be heard, or really people donning... Animal skins and dancing and, oh, if I must, I'll engage in a little sexual activity. All of this hoping to bring back the buffalo. These are all things that we don't understand, perhaps, from our culture. But in a different form, we're just as guilty. We're just as guilty. You know how I know we're really guilty? Paul talks about the fruit of idolatry at the end of Romans 1. I read through it last week for a different reason. But the fruit of idolatry is stuff we're all familiar with. He talks about homosexuality and every kind of wickedness and evil, greed and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent new forms of evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, merciless. You get the picture. But I think this is why when Paul shows up in Athens, he is deeply disturbed in his spirit. It's not because the statues were poorly made or that they were even made, but because of what it reflects in the heart. What it means in the heart. If you want to know if you have an idol in your life, any idol, what can you not live without? Paul says, "From prison, as he writes a church, he was uh, a church he was at not too long ago in our text in Acts, Philippi, conducting them on how to live joyful lives from prison." <laughs> says the man from prison. He says, "I have learned to be content regardless of my circumstances. I know how to live humbly, and I know how to abound. I am accustomed to any and every situation." to being filled and being hungry, to having plenty and having need. The connection for our illustrations, how does one be content in those examples I just gave you? Well, for the Roman Tribune, if I catch the man my bosses want me to catch, great. If I don't, I guess it's off with my head. (laughs) Even so, the Lord gives and takes away. Or, If the buffalo come back and we live another year, great. If they don't come back and we need to find some other source of food, clothing, and supplies, great. The Lord gives and takes away. You know, a lot of the idolatry in the Old Testament, Israel, is whenever they move into the once pagan lands and they conquer them, but then they take on their gods of Baal and so forth, it was actually for economic reasons. (laughs) See, against or again, I mean, this is a different culture, and the belief was was that the gods went with the land and the nations and the people. And so Israel moves in, and then they hear from those who were there before them, hey, Baal owns this land. If you want your farms to flourish, you got to worship him. And Hebrews were like, oh, great, well, we are Yahweh, so we'll just do both. We've got to make sure our farms produce. <laughs> and again, we say, see, I don't get that. But I wonder if we get it more than we're comfortable with, because idolatry was then and is now a worship problem. A worship problem. An idol is taking anything and supplanting God with it. Idolatry still exists today. We just don't call it idolatry, or it's not easily recognizable as idolatry. Sin is always deceptive, and so... Being deceived will never be the first to admit that we got a sin problem because we're deceived. Let me make this plain and simple. I believe the first two commandments are the first two for a reason. Worship no other God and don't make idols. If you or I ever say no to God, if we ever disobey Him, we have an idol. It's that simple. You might say, how so? Why do you say that? Well, because apparently there is a higher authority than God if we have the audacity to tell Him no. (laughs) If we have the audacity to say, I know what you're saying, but I'm going to... going to do what? What gives us the audacity to say, I'm sorry, sovereign of the universe, but there is a higher authority than you right now, and I'm going with that higher authority? What in the world? That's what idolatry is. Now... I know, pagan Roman cultures, Native American cultures, they, they had never been witnessed to. They didn't know any better. They didn't perceive that there was a sovereign God of the universe. You know, buffalo dances, different gods for different things in the cosmos. Got to appease them and pay them off. That's all they ever knew. Yahweh apparently never gave them the light of day. But then, again, Paul touches on that conundrum in the sermon. He's going to give the Athenians later. He says, although God overlooked... The ignorance of earlier times, he now commands all people everywhere to repent. <laughs> You're guilty with what you know. <laughs> You're welcome. It's something like, I've like, maybe I should stop reading the Bible. I just keep getting convicted. <laughs> you know, I, I think there is a reason my heart settled on this verse, Acts 17, 16 this week. The whole passage is largely about idolatry, and that's the primary thing that Paul Paul's sermon is to the Athenians will entail but my heart just rested on this one verse to unpack it well some of you I I opened with this you know that I'm a bible nerd (laughs) and I've been flipping and flopping and looking through various translations and driving people crazy with my indecisiveness and my bible addiction one who left with two kids and (laughs) and I, I also blog somewhat bible and theology are my primary content and I wrote a blog piece about this my last week, and I think it was my idol. <laughs> I had intentions at the beginning of this week when I began to study and to, to preach, I had intentions of preaching out of what I have been preaching out the last three times, uh the New American Standard Bible. And I had thoughts of returning to the ESV, even if it was just out of guilt. <laughs> and then, then I prepped in the NASB, and then I felt like it's word choices, and for my reasons and purposes... I just discovered that I have an idol in my life. (laughs) There can be good things in life, good enjoyments in life, but when they become God things, they become bad things for that person. Uh, For me, in this Bible headache I've been in, it was getting too big. It was getting too expensive. It was getting too all-consuming until I finally felt the Lord tell me, you're not looking for the Bible translation anymore. You're just chasing the wind is all you're doing. You're concerned about Bible makes and leather and word type and font. And it was a good thing. Bibles are good. So glad we live in a day and age when we have tons of Bibles. But for me, I should have known better and I think I was deceived. Because when the Bible type and the translation got in the way of just receiving and obeying the word of God, it became a problem for me. The BSB was a translation I came to and for the first time in a long time I felt like everything just went away and I could just simply read and trust and obey the Word of God, period. Now, I won't bore you anymore with this because this is probably a star- story that you can hardly identify with, but what is your idol? Ah, stop, don't no talk to me about that, Kevin. <laughs> See, what thing or things can you Really not live without. If you wake up in the morning and have some first thoughts, what are those thoughts? Sometimes we might be lucky and say, well, I read my Bible and I think about that. Well, then what are your second and third thoughts? (laughs) Can they be idols in the making or idols lurking beneath? Are there things in your life that control your emotions too much? I mean, I get happy to see family or I get excited about new presents or I'm warmed and satisfied by a cup of coffee God made us to enjoy things, sure, but are there some things in your life that if you're honest about, they just have way too much control over your emotions? Unlike Paul, you've not learned to be content in abundance or in need. You've learned to be content only in so far as you have blank, your idle, your days go much better knowing that what is in reach. If the money went out and blank was it in your house, would you be considerably emotionally affected? A lot of good things can become God things and then be bad things. Idolatry is a sin, and the sin is so deceptive, so Holy Spirit, help us to take the blinders off to find out what is our idol. You know, if we miss Bible reading and praying, oh, well, locks in the ditch, things had to be done, too busy. But if we miss blank... Well, it's not been a full day. (laughs) In other words, if we miss time with the sovereign God of the universe, it happens. But if we miss time with our idol, then well, then the day is not a good day. Idol first, God second, third, or fourth. If we miss Bible reading and praying, if we miss time with the sovereign of the universe, oh well, but if I didn't talk to this person, if I didn't interact with this person, if I wasn't affirmed by this person, then my day is ruined. People can be idols. I can be the idol of my own life. If I'm taken care of, if I'm in control, if I have all the resources and the security to stay in control, I'm content. But if I realize that I'm not in control, or if the budget book says you are not paying the bills this month even though you've worked all you can, or if the doctor says it's cancer, you're going to have to live with the unknowns while we try to remedy the situation, or if people fail us and we're in the seasons of unknowns, where we cannot be the source of our own comfort and security, do our emotions explode because, lo and behold, we're not sovereign of our own universe? In other words, our idol, me, is failing me. When Paul showed up in Athens, he was deeply disturbed in his spirit to see that the city was full of idols because Paul knew that idols fail people. They fail people. Why? Because idols are one of two things, demonic and or (laughs) non-living. Paul, in his itinerary after Athens, here, he's about to go to Corinth. And then later, in a letter to Corinth, while talking to them about eating food sacrificed to idols, he says, am I suggesting then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No, no. The sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I don't want you to be participants with demons. The Apostle John says in Revelation 9.20, in one judgment that they did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. See, the idols of old and our idols that were deceived into following, it's pointless. What do they do for you? How helpful are they for you? People, ourselves, we can't be saviors. And if the idols in our lives are things, they can't see us, hear us, nor ultimately will they ever deliver us. They'll only hurt us, harm us, leave us, fail us if we place them above God. The biggest deception, deceitfulness, if you will, of idolatry and all sin, is not that they fancy themselves up to be desirable, which is true, but the biggest lie of idols and sins in our lives is that God is less desirable. God is less desirable. The Westminster Catechism asks, what is the chief and highest end of man? Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy Him forever. Enjoy Him forever. That word enjoy is supplemented by "fully" to get across that the writers of that document believed there was a biblical precedent to say that people are made to enjoy God. I'm just convinced of this, that it may not be statues and outright things saying made for this God or that God, but you and I still live in cities of idols, we're so acclimated, deceived by it, we don't even know it. The author of Hebrews, many believed to be Paul or somebody closely acquainted with him. Perhaps Paul had a different writing secretary. He said, pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. How many of you, just be honest, this is not on your to-do list every day? Well, pursue holiness. <laughs> Like, this isn't front and center. I'll be honest, not for me, sadly, I admit. I'm not saying to myself, well, we're going to try to be holy today. I I kind of have a lazy sanctification perspective. It goes with the rest of my laziness. Well, God's got this covered, so I'm not going to be too enthusiastic and intentional about it. But this is a significant point here. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Here's what I think that means. I think it's the the antithesis of a well-known... An oft-corrected verse from the Psalms, corrected in interpretation for good reason, but you know that Psalm that says, delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. And the correction is, we're not talking about a genie granting wishes. (laughs) Oh, you desire this? Well, here it is. You desire that? Coming right up. No. God's going to give you new desires, period. And those desires he shall grant, because whenever you've delighted in God, you're delighting in who he is, what he wants, and how he operates. I'll give you an example. I liked video games growing up. I played video games until the people I played video games with left, and the people who I started interacting with more, one of them named Christy, (laughs) and we started doing life together, I lost desires for video games, because many of the video gamers in my life my two brothers and some friends, because of circumstances, we couldn't hang out more. And so I got new desires with the new people I started hanging out with. It would be hard to desire idols if you start delighting in God. Who's staunchly against idols, if you didn't know this. <laughs> no, rather to pursue God and to pursue his purposes. And one of his purposes is holiness. People who delight in the Lord, people who can see God? People who haven't been deceived and dulled by idolatry know something: that God is desirable, and God can be enjoyed. God is to actually be taken pleasure in. Whom have I in heaven but you? The psalmist asks in Psalm seven or seventy-three, twenty-five. And on earth, I desire no one besides you. It sounds like the psalmist takes pleasure in God. He desires no one besides God. You know, when I was a kid, I used to be scared about going to heaven, about the world ending. Not because of the weird beliefs about the Antichrist and all that, but because I wanted to get married. I wanted to travel. I wanted to do a few more things before I sat around in heaven wearing big diapers and playing harps all day long. Which that's not biblical at all. In short, though, I had other desires that were apparently more inviting to me than being in the presence of God. Sure, this psalm is poetic, but listen, on earth, I desire no one besides you. How about David in Psalm 27, verse 4? He says, One thing I have asked of the Lord, this is what I desire, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and seek Him in His temple. How many of you say, sign me up, I want to be in a 24-7 church service to just look at God? God is to be desired. He is worthy to be desired. And if we don't know that, or feel that, or think that, then let's pray for God to remove the cheap, unsatisfying garbage we apparently have supplanted the sovereign God of the universe with. So that we might have pure eyes... That's in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. May God make that so. (laughs) And that's why the Beatitudes begins with, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God help me, I'm poor in spirit when I think that there are things out there more to be desired than a loving, face-to-face, spiritual, total relationship with the sovereign God who made me. In that passage about idols in Romans 1, I like how Eugene Peterson imagines it in the message. He says, They traded the glory of God who holds the world in his hands for cheap figurines you can buy at any roadside stand. Idols. The next time you're tempted, or, God forbid, the next time you wake up in the middle of sinning with your idol, it is my sincere prayer that deep down in your soul and you believe with your whole heart, I know and could be doing something better right now. I know there's something a whole lot better than this stupid idol that is enjoying God and desiring God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, when Paul showed up in Athens and he saw all these statues and idols says he was deeply troubled in his spirit because Paul himself had been deceived with the idol of the temple and religious fervor and a cause in himself. And it led him to do horrible things such as separating families and seeing people whipped, beaten, if not murdered simply because of their faith in the sovereign God of the universe. But whenever you met him, he found instead of Pride and arrogance, he found joy, humility, and contentment in you. And he found that a relationship with you, like the psalmists declared of old, is to be desired above all things. Paul also said in Philippians that he says he's traded in everything. He counts it all as garbage, save this, knowing you. And I pray that that would be our hearts, that many of us, I believe, myself, our eyes, our brains have been doled. Uh, To think that the idols we serve in our lives will somehow do us good, but we're missing out on the greatest enjoyment and pleasure, and that is to know you. And so I pray that the next time any of us are tempted or in the middle of our sins of idolatry, that you would lay the great weight on us, that you are much more to be desired. We're just deceived if we don't know that or if we think the opposite. Help us to have pure eyes to see you. Help us to pursue holiness so that we might see you. Father, we love you and we thank you and we ask and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.